Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. If you're a little bit new to Bible study, just find your way over to the second half of the Bible. Uh, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then the very uh, the fourth book that you'll find will be John. The first four books are all named after the guys who wrote them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've been marching through the Gospel of John throughout the course of this year, and today we're going to land on chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 21, on a passage that uh, is somewhat well-known to many, many people uh, called the Good Shepherd, the idea uh, of who Jesus is as this great shepherd. Uh, earlier this week, uh, we lost a legend, uh, a man by the name of Stan Lee, who, uh, very unbeknownst to many people, reshaped much of modern culture died at the age of 95. Uh, now, you would think with a, with a description uh, as somebody who was a man who shaped culture, it would have been somebody who was a, a bioengineer or, a, you know, a nuclear physicist or somebody who found a, a, a cure to a great disease, but Stan Lee uh, was a guy who invented comic book characters. Uh, he, he is the guy who was the, the president of Marvel Comics he began writing comics when he was in his 20s, and Stan invented characters like the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and Spider-Man. At one point, Stan was asked what he thought a real superhero is, and he said a hero is someone who is concerned about other people's well-being and will go out of his or her way to help them even if there is no chance of a reward, that person who helps others simply because it should or must be done, and because it is the right thing to do, is indeed, without a doubt, a real superhero. Uh, this is the place where uh, we have to recognize that a guy like Stan Lee, he did have an incredible impact on our culture. There's a whole generation of people that I kind of count myself amongst uh, that we watched the cartoon versions of his comic book characters. We, wa we read the comic books when we were kids. But they were more than just the fanciful stories, uh, perhaps of others' imagination. Instead, there was always an, an, an undertone. There was always a reason for which he wrote these stories. And it was so that the outsider and the outcast could see that they could have a meaningful life, that there was something real and there was something valuable about, about them. Uh, the reason that he wrote all these stories about mutants and people who had weird powers was so that it could be a cultural commentary that no matter what your difference or your distinction, that you had a contribution to make. Uh, the stand-up comedian Seth Rogen tweeted out uh, right after Stanley's death, thank you, Stanley, for making people who feel different realize that they are special. At the end of the day, that's really uh, what we're all looking for. Uh, there's really very few people that feel like insiders. Most people feel like outsiders. Most people feel as if they are separated, like they don't fit, like they don't belong, like there's something quirky or weird about them. And the reality to that statement is that it is true. Uh, you are all a bunch of weirdos, all right? Uh, we're all weird. Uh, none of us fit together. None of us actually, you know, uh, are going to get along. And so what, uh, what played out in comic books 
is really just a reflection of the eternal realities that we see from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It is the reason for which Jesus uh, arrived on the earth is because really at our core, we're all broken, we're all weird, and we're all outsiders. And Jesus has come along to make an eternal impact, an eternal difference in order to bring us inside. So in John chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 1, I want to read this kind of extended passage to you this morning about Jesus being the good shepherd. Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The the gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought all of his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They'll never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. And Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus said again, truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own." I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Verse 19, again the Jews were divided because of these words. And many of them were saying, he has a demon, and he's crazy. Why do you listen to him? And others were saying, these aren't the words of someone who is demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Uh, Let me pray one last time, or one more time. Father, this is the place where we are asking for Your Spirit to teach us the power of Your Word in our lives, to reveal to us a, a deeper insight and a better understanding of Jesus as the Lord and Savior of humanity, as Your Son, as our Redeemer. So, Lord, where there is sin, would You break the bonds? Where there is apathy, would You inflame our passions for righteousness? And Lord, where there is faithfulness, would you give it courage so that it can operate boldly in the world? For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, People are looking to find a way to be insiders. 
And so in this particular passage, Jesus distinguishes himself from the Pharisees that we've read a little bit about in previous passages and, and from the other religious leaders. Because the, the normal pace of things in the world is that religious leaders, when they are operating by their own worldly wisdom and by their own human intuition, they become guardians of who gets to be in and who has to be out. And so, in the passage that we looked at over the last couple of weeks, there's this episode where there's a guy who is born blind, Jesus comes along, he heals him, and then the Pharisees are mad about it because they don't want to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, and they go all the way to, to basically telling this man who everybody knows was a blind beggar who is now, you know, can see and can operate in the world, they, they basically get to the point of rejecting him, and it says even in, John, in the previous chapter in John that they kick him out of the temple because they don't want him to be an insider. And so Jesus comes along in this next passage, and he gives them this figure of speech about who he is in order to help people to understand these guys, these religious elites, these Pharisees, these hypocrites, these legalistic people are not the arbiters about who gets in and who has to stay out. Because let's be real. Let's, let's get right down to it. If you and I become the arbiters, we become the, the ones who decide who gets to be in and who gets to out, who has to be out. We're not going to make good decisions because we're horrible people, all right, because we have preferences, because we have racism, because we have prejudices, because there are some people that we like and some people we don't like, and that gal that's down the street that always lets her weeds grow up too high, we would rather not associate with her because obviously she's of bad moral character, all right? And so we, we make silly decisions like that. And so Jesus comes along uh, both to tell the guy who had been born blind that he had healed all the way to all of his followers and to make sure that all of the Pharisees within earshot got it, that you guys are not the ones deciding who comes in and out of the sheep pen, that only the shepherd can do that. And so in this metaphor where Jesus has essentially called these, all these other guys false shepherds and thieves and robbers, it tells us five things about Jesus. Number one, it tells us that Jesus wants to know you intimately. Now, this is not something that, where God wants to know you from a distance, that he wants to sit up in his throne room in heaven and, and peer down through all of time and space and kind of sort of maybe find you like a little blip on a radar. But instead, it, the shepherd wants to know the sheep intimately. It talks about how he calls them, how it is that the sheep know him by name, how they don't respond to the voice of strangers. He calls you personally, and he distinguishes one sheep from another. As a matter of fact, it says in the passage that he calls you by name. It, one of the most beautiful por portions of the resurrection passage about Jesus is um, it happens very early on in the passage where Jesus is risen from the dead, uh, where Mary and the other women have gone to the tomb in order to anoint his body, and they find that the stone has been rolled away. So they run, and they find the disciples that are hiding, and they bring a couple of guys with them. And, and when they get there, uh, obviously the tomb is empty, and an, and an angel uh, tells them that he's not here. But for some reason, Mary... Uh, who, uh, it's Mary Magdalene, a woman of, uh, who had been oppressed by evil spirits before Jesus saved her. She stays there near the tomb, and there was a garden nearby, and she stays there weeping. 
And, and Jesus, in his resurrected form, comes along and he asks her why she's weeping. And she thinks he's the gardener. She doesn't know who it is that's talking with her. And so she says, if you know where they've taken his body, will you tell him so that we can go get it? And, and Jesus just replies to her with one word, Mary. He calls her by name. And she immediately recognizes that it's Jesus. We have a God who is in heaven who knows your name. So for everybody here that you think that you have been forgotten, that you've been left out, that somehow the, that the God of the universe is too busy to notice you, this is one of those passages where it says, Jesus calls his sheep by name. He knows you. He knows all about you. He knows right where you are. He knows the pains that are in your life. He knows the, uh, the victories you're about to experience. He knows the temptations that are constantly tripping you up. He knows every decision that you've got to make now and later. He knows you by name. Recently, uh, the great novelist, modern novelist, Jonathan Franzen, uh, who's one of these New York Times kind of best-selling authors, every one of his books hits the New York Times list. He wrote an article uh, pinning his top 10 rules for writing great novels. Uh, rules number one through nine are kind of things that just about anybody could have written or penned. Lots of novelists would have said the same things. But number 10 caught my attention because it's a spiritual truth that we should all pay close attention to. He said, in, as number 10, if you want to great, write a great novel, you have to love before you can be relentless. You have to love before you can be relentless. And it is the love of God that is relentlessly pursuing you. It is the love of God that is relentlessly breaking through all of the barriers. It is the love of God that, that pushes uh, the very character of God to know you intimately. And so you have this love from God that is going to relentlessly seek to know you. Number two, He leads you carefully. The great shepherd knows you intimately, but He also leads you carefully. Uh, in the ancient world, one of the things that, that you would take note of, uh, even in this modern day, if you go to the Middle East, is that shepherds do not drive flocks of sheep. They do not get behind a flock of sheep and yell at them and, and move them along. Now, some of you have, uh, you'll remember that uh, about two years ago when I first got here, uh, I had been here for about three or four weeks, and one guy my age in the church said to another guy my age in the church, uh, they were kind of jawing back and forth as guys are uh, wont to do. And, uh, and, and so this one guy who was originally from here in Florida said to another guy that was originally here in Florida, oh, you're just an old Florida cracker. To which the Alabama part of me said, there's about to be a fight. Because in Alabama, you don't call somebody that unless you're ready to tussle, all right? And so those of you that have been around Florida, maybe all of your lives, you know where that, that phrase comes from. It comes from the old days of the cowboys herding cattle where they would crack whips at them, and, they would, and that's where it comes from. They would crack whips to drive the cattle around. Because generally, that's what we think you got to do with dumb animals. you got to get behind them, and you got to yell at them really loud, and you got to push them along, you got to prod them, you got to spur them on. But that's now how a shepherd in the Middle East operates with their flock. Instead, they oftentimes get in the middle of the flock, or they get out in front of the flock, and they call them to come along with them. It is more of a loving kind of 
urging along than it is kind of the angry, cracking of a whip, yelling a loud voice, prodding along. And Jesus gets out, and, and he gets out in front of the flock, and he leads us where it is that we're supposed to go. The shepherd, this great shepherd doesn't yell from the cheap seats. Instead, he's invested in the flock's direction. He's out and he's among one of them. Uh, he brings them in. He's the one who guards them. He is the one who, who shapes uh, where it is that they're going to live, where it is that they're going to sleep. And it, and it says that he does all of this thing there in verse 13 because he's not a hired hand. He's not just somebody who, Johnny come lately, who's come along. Jesus has got this deep investment in you, so the shepherd leads us carefully. It is also, number three, is that he protects us relentlessly. Uh, he is willing uh, to know who the enemy is and protect us against the enemy. He knows the dangers, and yet he is unafraid. It says there in verses 11 through 13 that, that he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. The, the hired hand won't do it. When he sees a, a wolf coming, he runs away, and then the wolf comes through and snatches and scatters the sheep. And he does this because he doesn't care as much as the good shepherd. Whereas it says in verse 14, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Now, this is the place where Jesus doesn't leave this work to underlings. There's nobody who is going to protect you like Jesus protects you. There's no one who's going to guard you like Jesus guards you. There's no one who's going to stand watch over you like Jesus stands watch over you. One thing that we never think about, about shepherds, uh, is what their real toughness is. I mean, every portrait I've ever seen of a shepherd that, where it was hanging in a, whether a children's Sunday school classroom or somewhere in the hallways of a church building, it's always kind of this kind of soft-featured kind of guy with a long flowing robe and a perfectly carved, you know, shepherd's crook staff, and he, he stands there just almost like a, like a southern gentleman, kind of overlooking, you know, the hills where his uh, sheep are. That's not the case. Uh, shepherds had to be warriors. They had to be willing to fight and lay down their life and, and defend off ravenous predators. Uh, the, the shepherd's staff had that hook on one end in case a sheep fell into a hole, and, and, and the shepherd would use that crook to grab it by the, the haunches. Uh, that's an Alabama turn. Um, <laughs> grab it by the leg and, and, and pull it out. But on the other side of that staff, it wasn't flat. It was pointed like a spear so that the shepherd could fend off any predators that were coming to eat and destroy the sheep. And, and you have a great shepherd in heaven who is willing to stand in the gap when the ravenous wolves of this world come along. When every temptation shows up in your life, he's there. Uh, every time that it says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. It's the shepherd who stands in the gap. Uh, we have, a, we have an, a, an, you know, this enemy who is an accuser and who is a liar and who is a predator that later on in the Bible, it, it gives the metaphor that he is like a lion who is roaming about looking to see whom he might devour. And Jesus is the one who stands against both the enemy that wants to devour you and the sin of your own heart that is destroying you. 
Jesus has come to destroy what is destroying you. He protects you relentlessly. Number four, He satisfies you completely. As I said, the enemy wants to deceive and kill you. But look at what it says there in verse 10. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Now, let me set a really important detail of context here. In the passage, and, and it is uh, you know, normal for us to think that the only enemy that we've got is on the other side of eternity. Uh, we think of the enemy only in one kind of way. The enemy is the guy in the red suit with the pointed you know, horns and the, and the tail and the pitchfork. Uh, we just think about it being old scratch, being the devil, being Satan himself, the fallen Lucifer angel from heaven. But in this passage, there's more than one enemy that he's talking about. He is talking about this kind of outsider, ravenous wolf character that comes in to destroy. But remember how he starts the passage? Jesus is making a, he's drawing a line in the sand. He's delineating himself from the Pharisees and the legalists in the religious community who are the real thieves and the robbers of people's lives and hearts. He is making a distinction that these are not the people who get to decide who comes in and out of the sheep pen. I'm the one, as the good shepherd, I'm the one deciding. And so we have to be very careful ourselves that we don't wind up inadvertently getting on the wrong side of this equation of deciding who gets to come in and who has to stay out, of who's the insider and who's the outsider, because Jesus is busy defending who the sheep really are, and He wants to bring satisfaction completely both to you and to everybody else that He's inviting into the sheep pen. The enemy wants to deceive and kill you. The world wants to continuously lie about you. Legalists want to constantly shut you out. But Jesus offers you abundant life. Everything you will ever need to be satisfied is in Him. As I was recently reminded by my best friend, Jesus is always enough. That'd be a good place. Jesus is always enough. Amen. He satisfies you completely. Consider for a moment your list. What is your list as to the things that you find satisfaction in? What is it that when you're feeling gloomy or blue or moody or a little upset, what is it that is the default setting of our hearts, and we've all got these little glitches, they're called sin, that we go and we look for satisfaction in these other things? Is it yelling at the TV on a Saturday about football games? Roll Tide. (laughs) Is it a hobby? Is it comfort eating? Is it spending time, some kind of entertainment of movies or television or binge-watching Netflix or uh, some kind of video gaming? Is it that you look for satisfaction in another human being? That, that you are convinced that if you can have the right amount of intimacy with that person, that you're going to be satisfied in life? Is it that you go and, and you, you search and you crave for the stuff of the earth, and then suddenly you're 
you're left wanting for more because it really didn't satisfy you. There was no amount of outdoorsy activities or indoor reading or binge watching or game playing or visiting with friends or any other thing under the sun that really brought satisfaction. That is the truth because only Jesus can afford to us the abundant life that, that our souls deeply crave. He satisfies you completely. But then number five, he dies for you personally. The enemy does want to deceive you and wants to kill you, and the world does want to lie to you, and there are people who want to shut you out. But it tells us in this passage that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In fact, it tells us that that he has the authority there in verses 17 and 18 that he can lay down his life and he can take it back up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. This is the decision that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the King of the universe, the Lord of glory, the creator of all things, has made a decision, not just about humanity in general of billions of people, but you individually. He has made this decision, this God of the universe has made this decision about you, that he is going to die for you personally. He says, I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up. I have received this command from my Father. He lays his life down willingly for the sheep. And what can a sheep do for a shepherd? A sheep cannot repay a shepherd in any way whatsoever. They are completely reliant for everything with zero repayment coming back. Sheep are dirty and nasty creatures who oftentimes will wheel around on a shepherd and bite him. They are not good pets at all. They're not intelligent. They get lost easily. They are distracted by all sorts of little things in the world. The shepherd has to constantly be on guard. The the shepherd has to expend all of his energy. The shepherd has to constantly be looking because the sheep can never protect themselves. They have no defense mechanisms whatsoever against their own predators. They, They are kind of useless on their own. And yet the shepherd, the good shepherd, says, And to these creatures who really can't do anything for me, I will die for them. I will sacrifice my life for these sheep. And that's us. That's you. And that's me. So what do we do in response to the person and the work of Jesus? Let me just give you a a couple of quick hit kind of ideas. Number one, trust Him when you are attacked. And all of you are under attack. All of you are being attacked uh, by the enemy, by the world, by temptation. All of you are under attack by, the own, by your own sin nature that is trying to kill you eternally. 
And so trust Him. Trust that Jesus really is the Son of the living God who died on a cross in your place for your sins, was killed, went into the grave, and three days later, by the power of divinity, is risen from the dead. And the Bible states very clearly, Jesus states very clearly, that there's no other way to the Father but through Him. So if you will put your faith in Him, believe that He's the risen Son of God, and trust Him for your forgiveness, you will be saved eternally. So trust Him when you are attacked, whether it's in the short term or in the long term. Number two, rest in Him when you are tired. Anybody tired? Anybody weary? Anybody wore out by doctor office visits and diagnoses that you didn't want? and financial crunches that you didn't think were coming, and family dynamics that have gone sideways, and here we are on Thanksgiving weekend, and you're just hoping that crazy Uncle Larry doesn't show up for dinner. Some of you are crazy Uncle Larry that they're hoping he's not going to show up for dinner. Here's what you can do in response to the Good Shepherd. You can rest when you're tired. You don't have to convince God to love you. He does that already. You don't have to convince God to take care of you. He's doing that already. You don't have to convince God to take notice of you. He knew you while He was forming you in your mother's womb. You can just simply rest in Him when you're tired. Number three, you can look to Him for satisfaction. Rather than one more uh, episode while you're Netflixing, Rather than one more uh, cupcake or piece of pumpkin pie while you're binge eating, uh, rather than one more dip into the well of sin when you're looking for some kind of satisfaction in life, you can open up the Word of God and say, Jesus, I'm broken, I'm tired, I'm unhappy. I'm disgruntled, I am disjointed, I am undone in this world. And I need you to satisfy my heart because I know that all of the rest of this mess is not going to. So look to Him for satisfaction. And then finally, join Him to rescue other lost sheep. There at the very end of the passage, Jesus said that He had the right to take His, his life back up. And the Jews were divided. Some of them thought that he was possessed of a demon. Others of them thought that he had to be divine because he had healed a blind man. Jesus is continuously and constantly inviting us into the work of rescuing the sheep that are lost, rescuing the ones that are the outsiders to become the insiders. What a better way to live your life than to walk alongside of the shepherd as he is rescuing other people to come into his sheepfold. What a better way of life. What a better way to be able to live a life of trust when you're being attacked and find rest when you're tired and find satisfaction when you are depleted. To join him in the rescue effort that he is on. This is the best thing to do is while the shepherd is moving about the hills is for you as a member of the flock to keep following him. Now, some of you are tired, and I want you to find rest. But some of you are full, and it's time to get going. Some of you are, have got a lot of faith, and it's time to put it into action. And some of you have been depleted by sin, and there needs to be a lot of repentance. Repentance. 
Some of you are lost, and you need to be saved. And some of you are saved, and you need to get excited about it. So let me close with the words of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. He said about this, if we're going to join the work of Jesus on his mission, he said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. This is the work of the sheepfold of God that we follow our shepherd, that we find our satisfaction in him, that we find our hope and our help in him, that when we are rest, that we find, that we find him to be the source of it, that when we are strengthened, that we find him to be all of our strength. When we find ourselves to be faithful, that we give him the praise and the glory because he has borne it within us. But that when we are separated from the shepherd, that we listen closely for His call because He knows you by name. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that You'll take these next few moments and that You would…